Hey, welcome to Clinic Gym Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josh Satterley, and I have spent the last 12 years trying to find the perfect model of musculoskeletal healthcare. And I think I found it. I think it's combining chiropractic care with excellent rehab skills and then transitioning those patients into an exercise program at a gym where there's great communication between you and the people running the gym. We call that the clinic gym hybrid model. And over the last two years, we've really been trying to perfect it with the goal of having 100 clinic gym hybrid facilities opening up here in the U.S. I'm Dr. Josh Satterley, and welcome to Clinic Gym Radio. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Clinic Gym Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josh Satterley, and I'm with the, the doctor of how to move heavy things, Josh Hankin from DVRT Fitness. Josh, how are you? Good. Thank you for having me. Uh, I don't know, though. You already set forth the expectation this is going to be exciting, so I'm a little bit nervous now. All right. Well, I'll do my best to, <laughs> even if we stumble through the swamp, I'll be excited about it. You know, like, this is going horribly. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like my whole career, so we're good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, Josh is uh, not only an instructor uh, for all things uh, moving heavy, uh, what would you say? Moving heavy items that don't want to cooperate. That's kind of what your program's built around, uh-huh. right? Sure, yeah, uh, that's a good way of putting it. And um, he's also the inventor of the ultimate sandbag and developed that. Um, yeah, man, I'm really excited. I've heard you a couple, speak a couple times at Perform Better, and I know you are all the way down with the idea of blending the clinic and the gym, so we got a lot to talk about. Sounds awesome. Can't wait. Yeah. So let's start out. Uh, can you give me a little background of how you came up in this game and what started you out? Sure. You know, I, you know, growing up, my sport was basketball. Uh, you know, I was one of those just uh, basketball junkies. So I would spend the summers just, you know, going to basketball camps, practicing, spending every day at the courts. And then um, when I was around 14, I, I suffered a really bad ankle injury uh, that was pretty devastating. I basically, uh, growing up in Chicago, we'd play at the parks a lot. And uh, I went up for, I, I had to tell people it was a 360 dunk, but it was really just a layup. And um, there was a crack right underneath the basket. And I landed around that crack, turned my foot all the way upside down, mm-hmm. ripped everything in my right ankle. Uh, and so basically, you know, it was to the point where when we got to the emergency room, you know, the only time I saw my stepmother get announced of like, you know, being sick by the, the sight of something is when the yeah. doctors turned my foot almost all the way around. And like that, that almost did it. So they weren't sure, you know, how well I was going to be able to walk again. So, you know, I had the typical, you know, at least 12 weeks off that. And uh, so for the first little bit, I was, you know, being grumpy and self-pitying. And then eventually my older brother said, we're going to knock this off. So he had just gotten into weight training. And actually uh, one of his best friends growing up is actually a name you might know was Mark Crabtree. And uh, Mark later on did a lot of strength conditioning work yeah. uh, with some uh, pretty cool facilities so I remember going to the gym with them and, uh, you know, the first thing that well, every teenage boy does goes right to the bench press. When the bench press, my brother, you know, staying over me just with the bar, I get pinned horribly and <laughs> I'm wavering there, you know, begging him to get off and being a brother, he's just laughing and, you know, seeing what, how long it'll take. But, you know, after that moment, you know, I just actually ironically fell in love with it, the idea of strength training because it was unlike sports, you know, as you well know, and I would find out much later on that, you know, at a certain point with sports, no matter how hard you work, if you just don't possess the skill, the skills or the qualities and athleticism, you're just not going to keep moving forward. Uh, but I found with strength training that if you put in consistent effort and you, you know, came in with a plan, generally you were, you were rewarded. And that was kind of cool to me because it didn't take much longer after that. I found out I didn't have the athleticism to go really far. So I really started to lean on, you know, more of a strength side. So 
you know, that somebody else gave me the idea. Um, at that time, we had a high school strength condition coach that both my brother and Mark were really good friends with uh, named Tim Lang. And Tim Lang at the time was assistant strength condition coach for the Chicago White Sox. And so I had this great mentor. I like, I didn't know there was this thing called strength condition. Like you get paid to like train athletes. Like what a cool gig that is. Mm -hmm. So I, I knew right off the bat, I wanted to do that. So everything, you know, Tim had, and this is just when functional training is starting. Uh, and he had, I remember a medicine book by Vern Gambetta that he gave me. And so like, Oh, this is so cool. So I had a kind of a cool jump start to the whole functional training and strength conditioning yeah. side. Uh, so, you know, I went to college with that in mind that I was either going to be a strength and conditioning coach or I was going to be a high school coach that coached basketball. And, uh, you know, I always tell people it's a, a story that will bore most, but I accidentally walked onto the Arizona State men's basketball team. And, you know, during our uh, off-season conditioning, that's when an injury that had happened actually six months after my ankle injury, I had basically herniated two discs in my lumbar spine, came back with a vengeance. And uh, I remember we were doing single leg plows, you know, just landing, just, just bounding. And upon like the third jump or so, I just felt that lightning bolt go up my leg. And uh, that was when I knew like, things are not good. This is not good. And so the doctors looked at my spine. Uh, you know, when I was 14, I was told that you're going to have problems as you get older. That time I, they looked at go, this is going to be problematic. So I spent, you know, the rest of the year, you know, and, and people don't know, I am sure some people know how college athletics works. It's much more of a business, right? And as a walk-on, you're very expendable. So you know, I would go to the physical, the team physical therapist. They'd be like, Josh, you know, only practice 20% of the time. Well, you go to practice, the, the coaches are like, oh, you, you're not, you can't do anything. I'll just get someone to replace you. So, you know, you end up practicing the whole time. You go back to your physical therapist. You go, well, what did you do that? You go, I did the whole practice. You go, why did you do that? I'm like, it was basically Abbott and Costello routine. I'm like, well, <laughs> so, you know, and eventually during uh, doing some sprints, my leg, my right leg gave completely out. And I remember just, you know, arriving on the court, you know, you know, just horrible pain. And part of the pain was physical and part of it was just knowing this was it. You know, like I was done. Wow. And just right after that, the team doctor said, we can't, you know, allow you to continue to play. So they unceremoniously retired me, but I was still in bad pain. <laughs> and, you know, that started, that sort of burned my sort of excitement for basketball. So I started, you know, focusing on the strength conditioning side. And so I just, I wanted to know everything there yeah. was to know because first and foremost, I just wanted to help myself because I'm yeah. at 20 years old. I'm sitting there in class. I can barely sit in a chair, you know, walking's difficult, doing things that, you know, you think a normal 20 year old could do. I, it was very problematic for me. So I started going to like internship programs and then continue education programs. Now this is down in Arizona. Is that what you said? Yeah. This is in Tempe. I'm at and Arizona what, State. What time of the year is this? I'm oh, sorry. What, what oh, year is this? This is 98, 97. Okay. Uh, I know I'm old, um, but this is, you know, this is actually, no, no, I'm about the same age. So this is good. Yeah. You know, I, you probably, I don't know if you remember muscle media 2000 was a, Dude. a popular strength. Yeah, know, man. Bill, amazing. what's his name? Bill, Bill Phillips. Phillips, right? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, to Bill's credit, he brought about sort of strength conditioning to the mainstream because he brought yeah. in a guy named Charles Polkwin. And yeah. Charles was the first non-bodybuilding coach. He was the first strength conditioning coach to really be in, in bodybuilding magazines. And so I'm like, with the stuff he was talking about, like, what is this? I've never, yeah. even being in school, I'm like, I, I've never heard of this. So I just started taking every course I could, you know, I, I internship with Charles, spent a lot of time with Charles, you know, and whenever he would mention a different name, I'd go that. That's how I found out about Paul Chuck uh, back in the day. So, well, it's funny because you were in uh, Arizona in let's say 90, 98, 99, 2000. I mean, a lot just happened to be going on in that area 
I mean, athletes' performance was developing. Yeah. Um, what was, um, I'm trying to remember all the little gyms, but it became like for a while there, it was like the performance hub of the United States, right? Like just strangely, oh, yeah. a bunch of people were there and around there that happened to, to know a lot uh, about strength and conditioning. Well, I originally had the luxury of being a warm climate. Well, very warm sometimes, yeah. uh, but also being very quite inexpensive compared to like LA and so forth. Right. So a lot of people set up the facilities. Yeah. Like you said, there was a Brett Fisher who's still there that trains a ton of pro athletes. Uh, there was a bunch of a different. Ito was down there, right? Yeah. Daryl Ito. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the gym he was at before AP, but yeah, I mean, tons of those places were. Going so on. It, was, it was awesome to see and, you know, learn. And so that really started getting to shape a lot of it. And so yeah. that basically was my trajectory. I'm like, but then I saw a lot of my friends who were in the strength conditioning industry, how miserable their lives were. I'm like, <laughs> I mean, I had one friend, it wasn't his fault at all. It was just the, it was just the nature of the beast where within five years, he was at three different schools because yeah. the football yeah. coach gets fired. The whole staff gets wiped out. Right. So like between the pay, the hours and the stress, I'm like, this doesn't seem right. I'm going to pick something more stable. So I decide fitness. That was a dumb like move, right? Like, well, what's the thing less stable than strength and conditioning? Maybe <laughs> fitness. Um, but for whatever in my head, I had it that, you know, I could do it my way. I'm sure, you know, you can relate, you know, I was going to do things differently and, you know, fell on my face about 20 times, but that was sort of the start of, you know, getting in the industry, making tons of mistakes, but learning a ton along the way as well. Now, was this down, still down in Arizona? I was in Arizona. We were, you know, I, I was in Arizona for about 20 years. So, okay. you know, as you know, like in the last four years, my wife and I moved to Las Vegas. So that, yeah. yeah, outside of growing up in Chicago, I, I spent most of my time in uh, okay. uh, Phoenix. Now, now you're best known for the ultimate sandbag and mm-hmm. that um, I'm sure you invented it about 25 years ago, but it's okay. gained a lot of popularity in the last 10 years. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've heard your, your perform better speech. And if, uh, if anybody wants to, Number one, I would always recommend going to Perform Better Summit. They're an incredible place to learn because you stumble upon things you never, ever would have considered. And that's how I found um, Josh here. But how, can you take us on the journey of why you thought you needed to develop a new tool? I mean, because you were in fitness at the time where the new tool was kettlebells were pretty, were kind of up and coming and the secret mm-hmm. thing, right? You were back in the early 2000s. That's when Plyometrics and Don Chu and, and Vern and all these guys were kind of developing that as a, Who's the guy at University of Oregon? Uh, oh, Radcliffe. Radcliffe. Yeah. yeah. Dude, I saw, I saw that guy at the NCAA or the NSCA conference in Spokane jump over somebody on stage. That guy had yeah, he's a bit athletic. He's a bit athletic. He's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyways, uh, but you started seeing that. And at a time where there's a lot of publishing going on too, whereas previously there hadn't been a whole lot of publishing about kind of the conditioning aspect or the more performance-based information, whereas before it was just you know, uh, what's his name? Bill Pearl's keys, to the universe kind of right. stuff, you know, here's how to do 14 variations of bench press. So how, how did you get into the thinking about, Hey, I need to develop a new tool here. Well, you know, for a long time I did. And, you know, I had opened up a gym, uh, around 2002 and, you know, I, you know, I, I always tell people the first thing I bought was this really souped up power rack and people have to understand, like I, at the time had a background, I competed in some Olympic weightlifting, even with my back issues. And then I, about that time, started getting really into strongman. Uh, so I was doing some competitions then. So like our gym was very eclectic. We had a ton of stuff, but you know, I never dawned on me. As long as it was something. heavy, you had a bunch of it. We had, all, yeah, I was kind of a bit of a junkie in retrospect. You know, that was a bunch of mistakes because looking back, you know, 
I, I, I made probably one of the biggest mistakes I could tell people I made in opening my facility is initially I made it for myself rather than yeah, yeah. my clients. Uh, but there was no program there. It's just, you just did what, you know, you had known through, through going through other uh, internships. But anyways, so like 2002, I'm, I'm going through an internship program and the gentleman I'm going under goes, Hey, check, you got to check out this kettlebell thing. And I'm like, I go online and I look at him like, kind of looks like what I can do with a dumbbell. I don't get it. He goes, trust me, you know, do it. You, you won't regret. So, you know, I, I, I buy not, not being confident of what this thing is like the lightest kettlebell at the time, which was like eight, eight kilos, which is about 18 pounds. I had a VHS tape, if that wants to date me a little bit, <laughs> to try to learn the lifts. And I'm going through this, and I'm oh. like, I, I can do the movements because I have a lot of the, the, the actual moving isn't too unfamiliar, like hip hinging and squatting. But the, the thought process behind it, some of the progressions, the way they were using the implement was very different. And I saw an opportunity because one of the things I struggled with from the fitness side is I believed I wanted to take the concepts from athletic-based training and bring it to general population. But they obviously didn't have the movement coordination. They didn't have the mobility. They didn't have the athleticism yeah. to really do a lot of this stuff. So, like, how do we make this accessible? And it started to come to me that this kettlebell thing could be a solution. So, in 2003, I went through my first kettlebell program. And I always tell people what made me fall in love with it was none of the secret Eastern Soviet, you know, mysteries or so forth. I, I really fell in love. Like, the first sentence that came out of Pavel's mouth was, you know, we're not here to teach you how to use a kettlebell. A kettlebell is just a vehicle to teach you our system of movement. And up to that point, having gone through all these programs, I never heard someone talk about movement. We were still mm-hmm. very much muscles and lifts, right? What right. muscles do we working? What lifts do we do? And strength conditioning is just like, you have these standard lifts. You just, everyone did them, right? Without question. So going through that program, I, I was so excited to like learn this whole new concept and way you think of it. It was one of the first times I had a big breakthrough on my little back too. So, you know, having this passion, wanting to know everything after the course, I go to Pablo about what, what do I learn? How do I learn this more? He's like, you got to read the old stuff. And I'm thinking the stuff from the seventies and eighties. And he's like, no, <laughs> like the early, you know, late 1800s or 1900s. And for those that aren't familiar, the reason he has suggested that is there was an idea of physical culture at the time where it actually dates back to the Greeks. And actually it was used in uh, later on in Soviet pro- propaganda during the cold war was that physical fitness was a part of the entire human. Right, mm-hmm. that you weren't a good "quote unquote" citizen unless you had physical fitness too. So you know, it was part of philosophy and science and math was physical fitness. Yeah, I mean that uh, movie, uh, the documentary movie, uh, Three Hundred. Yeah, you know? well, there's element. Of, there's definitely an element of that. Yeah, right? but Sparta was uh, took pride in the fact that they were you know prepared at any moment. Right, they were. Yeah, their physical abilities were as high as their mental abilities. Absolutely, and so. You know, what you see back then is not only appreciation of the more holistic way of looking at the body, but, you know, people were doing gymnastics and wrestling while they were also lifting. And so right. you know, the, the thing I always laugh at is when people, you know, try to take a hit at functional training and they're like, oh, it's no different than, you know, just focusing on muscles. It's like back then they would, they even had quotes understanding that our boss, our body was meant to be one unit. Our body had mm. these chains. Like there's a great 1940, 1924 book about muscle building from one of these strong men that talked about like, you can't get strong without training the, the muscles and groups and the way they're supposed to perform. So even back then we had the science and somehow we totally missed it. But yeah. to go into like how we got to the sandbag though, was the problem was to, to give those internet. people credit in the seventies, they also came out with polyester <laughs> uh, which is not comfortable, doesn't deal with sweat well, and you can't iron it or wash it. So uh, they weren't missing the boat just on athleticism. No, I mean, there's a absolutely. lot of boats. 
I won't be a style critic anytime soon, but yes, absolutely. But, but the hard part, obviously without some, something like the internet was mm-hmm. they obviously had an issue with communication. So when people talk about things like, oh, you know, this is not how they did in old time strongman training. It wasn't like there was some unified system that everyone was using. It was just basically this guy thought this, this guy thought that. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I think I have a, a decent ability to do is try and connect dots so I said, okay, what are the commonalities that all these guys are saying? And then in one form or another, they all talked about actually stabilizers and stability training and why that was so important. And their, their way of sort of communicating a lot of that was through lifting odd objects that, mm-hmm. you know, because they were had unpredictability in their movement, you had to sort of, you know, figure out more efficient movement right. patterns. Can we pause real quick? Because I, I, I know you're a historian, a bit of historian in the world of strength. Looking back on some of those early books, what, what were some of the things that shocked you about the ability to do? I mean, like, cause if you train as a bodybuilder, you can't do some of the things they talked about, but I mean like back in the day, bending steel bars and, and uh, I can't remember the inch is it the inch dumbbell. Mm-hmm. That's the, and he would do that crazy, like windmill type press with it. And there's some things that I've seen pictures of going, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know if anybody could do that today. <laughs> you know? No, I mean, I mean, the, the thing is like fitness then did, wasn't as popular, most, more, mostly because of what you're alluding to, that manual labor was still a big part of our life. Mm-hmm. So there didn't seem to be a need to do exercise. Mm-hmm. Right? And these and strong then, things were like, um, they were put on display. They were shows, right? Like they would be at the, the boardwalks and things like that. They would demonstrate these, these feats of strength to large groups as part of entertainment. Yeah, you can say like these were the first professional athletes in a sense because yeah. they would travel in these circus and they'd be doing performances and part of their performance was strongman acts. So yeah, that was that was the antithesis, and especially some of them that, you know, they would also do wrestling matches and they would do <laughs> other things too. Because I mean, wrestling was, if you look at the history of fitness, wrestling was part of the very first Olympics in Greece. So it's like mm-hmm. some of these things, but if you look at what makes up wrestling, it actually makes a lot of sense, right? A lot of mobility, stability, coordination, and power strength, you know, like all at once. And we mm-hmm. totally got away from that, but that, that inspired me. And so, you know, being a former athlete, you know, all you have to do is tell me something is the hardest thing to do. So <laughs> in one form or another, they talked about like a bag of something. So, you know, I go and do what probably a lot of people can relate to is I got an army duffel bag, some garbage bags, did my first homemade sandbag and with 80 pounds, it kicked my butt. And so, I was like, oh, okay, this is awesome. So what does any good coach do? They're like, now I'm going to kick my client's butts with this thing. Right. So I made a whole bunch of other bags and, you know, clients loved it at first, but within probably about a month's time frame, we started seeing some glaring issues. One was I, I was treating it at the time like a barbell, just like it was just another barbell. So, you know, initially the shock and the novelty of the item was cool, but then we didn't have a way really to progress because you're not going to put two and a half pounds more of sand in your sandbag, Right. Uh, and then we didn't like have like, well, outside of just being difficult, what are we actually teaching people? Mm-hmm. So I started like, okay, well, let's, let's back up a second. Let me read everything I can find on sandbag training. Cause as the internet loves to remind me, I didn't invent sandbags, um, which I never claim I did, but like, we're going to get into what we actually did just, uh, create, which was a system. And so I just, to my surprise, there was actually very little information on sandbag training. Probably, like in all the books I could find, there was one book dedicated fully to same bags. It was about 40 pages. It was mostly just like exercises. And most of them had like a chapter or five to six pages of like, oh, you can do this. This is good too. And it was really hard to find anything concrete. So I was about to abandon the whole idea when my buddy goes, what would you do differently if you could create something? I'm like, mm-hmm. well, I don't know. I don't make equipment. I'm a coach. 
And so, you know, everybody's got the buddy that knows a guy. Yeah. Uh, so my buddy's like, well, what if I have a guy call you? And so basically, long story short, uh, a, boat, a boat cover company uh, in Chicago, ironically of all places, called me and was like, hey, your buddy told us that you had this idea for the sandbag. What would you do? So basically, it was a very rough version of what we have now. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, what started to happen is we, I started to think like, okay, if we were going to ban in a sandbag, then we had to say, is the problem the tool, the system, or both? Mm-hmm. And at the point with the homemade sandbag, I really thought it was both. Like the tool didn't allow, I mean, think about it. If we do any type of serious training or therapy, we don't go, hey, I'm going to make this at home and then use it on people. <laughs> but apparently, well, grass and tools kind of right. like that. Right? Where were that? But then you see how they have evolved, right? Like yeah. kind of the same thing. And so it, it was one of those things like, hey, if we have the right tool, then we start having to build a system. Like, what are we actually trying to accomplish? Like, the sandbag provides an opportunity for very unique attributes. So how do we maximize that? Because mm-hmm. it doesn't actually show itself if we treat it like a sandbag or like a barbell. So that's where the system came in, started coming yeah. in. And we just basically started to use it with clients to go, wow, if we do this, this fixes that. So then it became, wow, like this actually makes our job as coaches better and gives the clients faster results. So it become less and less about the implement, but what the implement taught people about how to move their bodies better. Mm-hmm. So go back to that first, uh, when you work with a guy from the boat cover company, what, w- what was the capacity of the first kind of set you had built? Was it like all 80 pounds or was it a 20, a 40, 60, and 80? I remember the first one we did was rather small. I think it was like up to about 40 pounds. Okay. And then I went to like a bigger one. So I think it went up to maybe 80 or maybe 800 mm-hmm. pounds. Um, but I had no idea how to make such a thing. And so it was the whole side of manufacturing was a whole different process that yeah. I learned outside of just coaching and just, just a whole bunch of details that probably bored most people, but things yeah. I would have but, never I mean, you considered. Have, you have handles, you have webbing, you have Velcro, you have zippers. What else do you got? I mean, you got a, a ton of stuff going on like, uh, what you, very different modes of, of manufacturing and then a bag that is meant to be freaking filled with heavy stuff and dropped from height, right? Like that's the worst design for a, that's the worst uh, yeah. thing you could ask for a bag is like, yeah, yeah. I'm going to fill it with really heavy stuff and then basically not get, take care of it. Yeah. To, 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 to go off of that, you know, when we started working with you know, better companies and they had engineers looking at what we had, they basically said that like, Oh, here's, you want this thing to be resilient. But you know, a lot of times, for example, if they do a drop test, they just drop something to see what its tolerance is. Mm-hmm. You can predict because the load's not changing. It's you know pretty stable. The shape's not changing and so mm-hmm. forth. So that, you know, with the same, like obviously it's, it's changing a little bit. So that gives a challenge, but we also had to answer the challenges of like, okay, well, how long should a handle be? Where should it be? How far from one another should it be? How does that yeah, change? What the direction should it be? Parallel to the bag or perpendicular or yeah, and then, you've got both, right? Yeah, and then the length of the handles. If it's too long, does it change the mechanics of the exercise and you know uh, yeah. things like that? And then it was even like how how big do we make them? Because you know we take, tend to take for granted that typically a barbell is seven feet long, but why is it seven feet long? Like. I'm sure I mean, there's some ridiculous reason, but you ever probably less less than people think because I mean if you go back to the origin of the barbell, which was like in the early 1900s, developed by a uh, equipment company, the whole goal was they wanted a dumbbell they could put two hands on. Okay, and so you have a barbell, and the barbells that you look at the time were mostly about five feet long because metal was very expensive, right? But as something gets longer, you can add more load. Mm-hmm. 
because you can't do it when it's smaller, right? So when something you start to add more load to something, you become more load-centric, you stop moving as much, now you have this implement that's largely sagely point-based that is used actually for a very specific number of things that actually goes against 90% of the implements we have in the gym when it comes to how we should be programming. Because if I ask you... Talk more about that. I'm, I'm, well, if I ask people in the gym, okay, what, which implement actually physically changes its load? The answer is the barbell. Dumbbells, you just have more of them. Cables, you have more of them. Medicine balls, you have more of them. Bands, you have more of them. So my question becomes, why are we programming for the 1% when 99% of these implements function differently? Mm -hmm. So then that started me down the road of like, you know, developing the system a little bit more uh, holistically, like how how do the principles and concepts translate to a lot of things and is the way we're looking at programming kind of off because we just tend to replicate what, we were taught when we were younger and we never questioned, well, is that the best way of doing it? And does that make sense off the science that we have today? Are you looking to get into the tennis crowd locally? Then I would highly recommend you check out racketfit.com. Now RacketFit is designed by the same crew that brought us TPI Tylos performance Institute, but it's designed around the game of tennis. Now, if you know anything about tennis, you know that it is a fantastic pool of patience because typically tennis players can pay cash and they can come in for performance care. It's everything that you want in a patient. They show up to appointments, they're easy to deal with, and they've got money. So highly recommend you check out racketfit.com so that you can serve those tennis players better. It's all about the assessment of uh, tennis and the moves that the players have to make, and I can't recommend it enough. So check out racketfit.com. How many iterations has your, your sandbag gone through? Well, I like to, you know, joke that we're like Iron Man Mach, you know, 25 or something. But I sort of lost count, I think, over 10. Um, some of the changes were subtle and some of them were more dramatic. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's just a byproduct of going, you know, what's the best thing we can create? but also offer it as a price that people can afford. <laughs> you, know, sure. that, you know, if we have a $1,000 sandbag, Probably not too many people are going to well, be able thank, to buy that. Thank God you don't ship it full. I mean, right? Well, but we get that question a lot. We get that question a lot. Like, why don't why don't we do that? It's like, well, shipping will kill you. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been a lot, and a lot of it was also me when we went to better manufacturers. Like, oh, we had better materials available or better abilities to do certain types of stitching. Yeah. Like, for What's example, something somebody could look at on on the new ones that you know maybe didn't exist in the first couple. Well, the biggest is just the material that we use. We don't use a fabric. We use a high-density vinyl. And the reason we do so has a couple of reasons. Because you knew is, the coronavirus would come and you wanted yeah. to make it wipeable? There's a, <laughs> there's a funny joke about Well, it's not really funny to joke about that because it actually happened. Um, you know, one is obviously what you just said. You know, having the ability to wipe down stuff is super important, obviously, in clinical mm-hmm. settings. Mm-hmm. But even in fitness, right? I don't want to... So it's funny that U.S. Air Force a couple of years ago started ordering all their, their Air Force bases all could only order through us because they had gone to a cheap fabric route and they got ringworm. Yeah, which is not Sometimes. awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, that the 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 vinyl's you know more durable. It's less abrasive. All these. Plus, it looks cool. <laughs> it looks cool. It looks cool, but it's also you know yeah. just when you grab onto it, it doesn't hurt. Yeah. You know, it's simple. You know, I always say if we're going to ask people to do things that typically don't like to exercise, the actual use of the implement can't create an obstacle in of itself, right? Like mm-hmm. you can't go, oh man, like you know, most people they don't like to exercise, you know, statistically speaking. So mm-hmm. we go, hey, you're going to do this exercise. Now they already don't like the exercise, but now I'm going to give you an implement that makes you more uncomfortable. Well, that doesn't sound awesome. Yeah. So we, we, we found lots of things like that. You know, the rubber handles came as a byproduct 
of, you know, talking to a coach many, many years ago. He's like, oh, Josh, I love your stuff for our boot camps, but when we do repetitive work, it just eats up in our hands. And so that was an obstacle. So like, well, can we, can we make that better? So it was doing that while also being cost sensitive to, you know, what would that do to our pricing? Yeah. And as a company, we've always had this pride of like, we're an education company with a piece of equipment, not an equipment company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we wanted people to want to use the implement. So you have to make it in a sense where it's very user-friendly. And now you can focus on the hows and whys rather than the implement yeah. itself. Awesome. So now the, the, the smallest one, I mean, how many different sizes do you have now? I believe we have five. So, you know, one of the aspects that people tend to overlook with sandbags that make it unique is there's a load component, obviously, but there's also a dimensional component. Yeah. Uh, so it's not only, Hey, I want to use this because it's this weight. It's well, does that size work for that exercise? Uh, so our smallest ones go up to about 20 pounds, low is about five pounds. Our biggest one goes up to 160 pounds, which is yet to be a load issue for most people, even though 160 doesn't sound large compared to a barbell. We've had the strongest yeah. of people find that to be. Get your 160 pound buddy drunk and have him yeah. pass out and then try and Pretty move much, the right? <laughs> you don't need it to go any heavier than that. And that dimensional well, component obviously becomes much more amplified. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's understanding both the load side of it, but also the dimensional side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after you had the product, you, you said you, you also started uh, kind of developing the technique or the system around it, mm-hmm. right? What were, what were some of the early things you learned versus, you know, now you, you're widely accepted and you have great training oh, programs, but early nice. on, <laughs> early on, what were you just, uh, you know, cause it's like, I always laugh. You go to the, I don't know what it is, but with a kettlebell, the number one photographed or videoed exercise is that stupid ass sumo deadlift, high pull, like oh. pull the kettlebell up to your chin with your high elbows. I call it the impingement exercise, yeah. like bilateral impingement. But I don't know why, but for some reason, videographers love that move. I don't know if it looks good or what. And the least filmed is the kettlebell swing. The proper kettlebell swing, the way it should be done, just doesn't exist on YouTube for God's sakes. I'm like, this is the, the craziest thing. You know, here's how to do, how do you improperly use this tool and the proper way doesn't nearly get the cred. Well, yeah, I mean, to speak to that point, I mean, we, we battle and we've been in social media since it's been out there basically, but, you know, it, to your point, it's, it's hard to balance the sexy to get people's attention with what's actually beneficial. Uh, you know, sitting there doing just the foundations that we have probably won't get the eyeball. So I always say, and we don't do stuff that's obviously dangerous, but we always preface stuff like this is advanced, but we want to start a conversation like, oh, what is that? What are you trying to do? Like, wh- where do I start? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, hey, for us, golf, I, Butch Harmon said like the, the most important three things in any golfer, grip, posture, and alignment. Yeah. And he said, but I've never had anybody walk in, a, get a lesson and say, can you work with me on grip, posture, and alignment? And it would affect everything, but nobody asked for it. You know, they're like, I want to hit a high flop shot and then maybe work on my fade. And he's like, you... <laughs> You don't well, need that shit. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny you say that because, again, you know, now we're, our, our first generation was 2004. We started, you know, really offering in 2005, so 15 years, 16 years into it. You know, we still get much fewer questions over how to use it than uh, can, can I throw it? Can I beat this up? How durable is it? I'm like, well, do you have that same question about your barbell, your dumbbell, your kettlebell? Like, what are you thinking you're going to do? So yeah. the answer to your, your previous question was the biggest thing was just like, it, just to help people understand it's not a barbell and that the way we're going to use it's going to be different. So again, you know, no fault to the person, but you know, you tend to default to what you know. So when someone, you know, people almost feel embarrassed to ask us, how do I use this thing? 
I would say that the number one question people want to ask, but don't want to, especially higher level coaches is what do I do with this? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like once they, the value in it is basically what you do with it. And that sounds obvious, but again, a lot of people, as you know, are about, you know, hey, other you aspects a, of the implement. You could use a kettlebell for curls, yeah, but that's not where it shines, you know? No, no. And then, so it's like, you know, what, what is this going to be? I always tell people, if I'm going to use an implement as a coach, I got to think about this is the best implement to do what I want. And this does it better than anything else. So I think a lot of people don't do that, and especially in the fitness side. Oh, I think a lot of people, they pick the implement first and the exercise, and then they try to make up a solution uh, rather than, hey, what's the problem? What am I trying to teach people? And then what's the best tool to, to help people with that? Uh, and so that's, that's basically where we started with. And just, you know, we had to create a system. So we had to make all the mistakes. Uh, like, hey, you know, if we do this and this happens, for example, you know, we use neutral grip handles when we deadlift or are we clean? And a lot of people, because you don't have the option of barbell, they want to go that pronated grip. But the problem is, you know, on a barbell, if you try to, quote unquote, break the bar, which is a cue you use to engage the lats and gain that uh, stability, mm-hmm. if you do that with a bag, because it's pliable, it just folds versus we pull out the handles on the neutral grip and that locks in our plank so we can mm-hmm. do hinges and we can keep people safe. So it's just it was just basically making up the rules, but doing it in a sense that like, oh, this is the right way to use this piece of, of equipment. And so that meant a lot of mistakes too. <laughs> so real quick, if somebody's like intrigued by this and they want to find your product, find the education, where, where can they go? I mean, the best place to go to dvrtfitness.com and basically our website's packed full. We have tons of free blogs, probably an overwhelming amount of information. Obviously, we have the products and our education there. But people can also just email us through the website if they have particular questions. Uh, my wife is a physical therapist. So, you know, between her and I, we can generally a- answer most people's questions upon where they're coming from and the type of uh, yeah. uh, training that they do. And so folks know, what does DVRT stand for? <laughs> so it stands for Dynamic Variable Resistance Training. And the reason I wanted to have that was, Years ago, um, and I've known Alan Cosgrove, who is a very prominent fitness professional for about 20 years. And, uh, you know, I said to him, I said, I need to have something that helps people get away from this idea of sandbag training because they became over-focused on the implement. And unfortunately, they weren't focused on how, what we were doing with it. So we had to create a name of a system because sandbag training doesn't mean anything. If you go to someone, I do sandbag training, you know, I go, what does that mean? Like, if I go say, Josh, I do barbell training. That doesn't mean anything. Do Am I doing powerlifting, Olympic lifting, bodybuilding? What am I doing? Uh, yeah. So we wanted something that emphasized our system. How are we using this? Mm-hmm. So that's how DVRT came about. So it's DVRTfitness.com? Correct. All right, cool. We have a really long URL, ultimatesandbagtraining.com, but I figured mm-hmm. DVRT Fitness is easier. Yeah. Awesome. All right, so so going back to the the tool, one thing you you realize quickly is, you know, hand, hand grip had to change uh, or you know, how people set up for an exercise may have changed. What are some other, uh, can you walk us through maybe some modifications early on the way you were doing things, uh, exercises, and now how you recommend them uh, being done? I mean, I think a, a great example is, you know, having come from Olympic lifting and then strongman background, I loved, you know, a lot of the Olympic lifts and their modified versions. So one of my favorite exercises was a clean and press. So initially not, you know, knowing exactly you know, how do we optimize this? Mm-hmm. We would clean the weight. So from the ground into the crooks of our arms and then mm-hmm. with our hands in front of the bag, basically. So the weights in the crook of our arms, we'd press the weight overhead. And we found out very quickly that that just sucked. That was not comfortable. Didn't feel good <laughs> on the shoulder whatsoever. 
Yeah. And it had it dawned on me, like, what was happening? Why did that suck? And if you think about, hey, if I'm going to press a cowbell overhead, my hand's pretty mm-hmm. close to my shoulder. Same thing with a dumbbell, even with a barbell. Mm-hmm. So, but if I hold the weight in the crooks of my arms and have the weight out in front of me, away from my hand, my hand's now far from my shoulder. So I can't engage the lat to help give me that whole body press versus now I'm really loading up the shoulder. So mm-hmm. now we're very adamant that people press with the weight upon their fists, uh, which is funny because it, it basically, when you ask people, why do they want to use Samex? They'll tell you because they're unstable and you go, oh, okay, what does that do? They just look at you funny like, well, I don't know, it's unstable. But what people, confusion, bro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what they don't realize is what they're actually asking for is they want to increase movement accuracy. Because yes, you need to be strong, but just being strong won't allow you to move well enough to handle the unstable implement. So you have to be accurate with your movement as much as you do have to be strong and powerful. So it's funny, the clean to fist can be challenging for people and they get frustrated. They're like, oh, this sucks. I'm like, well, I thought you wanted something unstable. Uh, so it's just one of those things. It's not drastically unstable. It's just it's, it's in very subtle ways mm-hmm. because you don't want it to be drastically unstable because just like unstable surface strength has been shown not to increase strength and power. So would something that would be dramatically unstable, like you know, like slosh pipes have been around forever, right? Slosh pipes hardly get used because they're so incredibly unstable. You can't use them for very much. You can't progress them very well. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just monitoring some of these variables like that, or you know, in a hip bridge, you know, everyone puts weight on their hips, and if you understand how the body functions, that makes no sense because your glutes work with your Latin core in locomotion that posterior oblique thing. So we actually teach people to hold the weight over their chest, pull the weight apart. Now we engage the Latin core to work synergistically with the glutes. So it's a lot of those little things that make a profound difference at the end of the day. Very cool. And what, what is the, uh, <laughs> what is a, a common exercise you see done that you're just like shaking your head? Like that's not what it's for. Pretty much all of them. No, uh, if I go if I go on social media, my wife's like, "Don't look at the hashtags sandbag training. You'll just get angry." And I only get angry not because I have this need to be, uh, you know, right. Mm-hmm. I feel like Michael Scott. It's not as much as my need to be right. Um, it's just that people can hurt themselves, and then they write off the tools like this is dangerous. It's not good. It's like no, you're using yeah. it badly. So queens are a big one that people just do brutally. Um, clean and presses particularly because people do exactly what I said is wrong. Mm-hmm. And the reason they do is because, well, they just saw someone else do it and it's mm-hmm. easier, right? You don't have the instability. You've made that unstable and yeah. unstable. Uh, our lateral drags where if you're in a plank position and we're dragging the weight across, people just throw the weight back and forth. Um, shouldering people don't appreciate is a very complex show. Bring the weight from the ground to your shoulder. It extends the range of motion. You, mm-hmm. have, you have to, you know, you have this diagonal pattern. You have to resist frontal plane forces. Mm-hmm. So I just think people, it's interesting. My wife and I always say this, like people give such great care when they use most strength training tools. And some, for some reason, this implement causes people to go mental. I don't know why they just like abandon all sense of good movement principles, you know, what they're trying to achieve. They just do stuff. So yeah. I would say that's probably the worst aspect. Of I think the part of, part of it would be that the apparent indestructible nature of it, you know, you can, uh, you can do anything you want. It's, it's, I see that as a general rule, like kettlebells to people appear indestructible. Mm. And I've seen people freaking drop them from like shoulder height, you know, onto the floor and just move on. I'm like, dude, come on. Like that thing will bounce and hurt somebody or hurt you or fall on your foot. And I've seen uh, plenty of broken kettlebell handles. Yeah. I mean, it'll damage your equipment. It's not awesome either. Yeah. Well, as a gym owner, you appreciate that. The the people using them are just like, ah, well, I'm sure there'll be a new one in here tomorrow. It's fine. (laughs) Exactly. But uh, people get hurt. Yeah. But like, then you see the like super high end, like, 
you know, the, the, the uh, dumbbells with the rounds, you steal weights and the imprint and everything. And I don't ever see people drop those. And I wonder if it's like, those look fragile, you know, the sandbag looks like it, you know, could put up with a beating. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I understand where people are coming from in the sense that they, you know, this, this looks like something very different and it behaves very different. So they tend not to give the same thought process. And I think maybe like to your point, it doesn't look dangerous to a lot of people. So they think they can just do whatever. And, you know, I even years ago, I heard, I read an article in a muscle magazine only because I was given it, um, where a NFL strength and conditioning coach was actually talking about sandbag training. And this logic made zero sense to me. He goes, well, sandbags by nature are unstable. So therefore technique is not that important. I'm like, just what? to what you, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what he said. I'm like, based upon what you just said, Technique would be even more important because you have an unstable yeah. implement. <laughs> so yeah, even even people you think like, should know better. A don't. football is not a sphere, therefore throwing it is not nearly doesn't take nearly the right. accuracy. Like a baseball, of, right? Yeah, or something, or weight. Yeah. <laughs> that's the opposite, you know. Yeah. Like, so it's just weird logic that people have, and so yeah. and and it comes from again, just unfortunately, we live in the day and age where social media can perpetrate such horrible things. But yeah, it's just wanting to be a resource for people going. I don't want people to use sandbags. I want them to gain a benefit. And if the benefit is through using our sandbag, yeah. then awesome. That's what we want. Well, that's my next question. So you guys did a great job um, of, of, you know, doing the fitness side of things, mm-hmm. but your wife, as you said, is a physical therapist and, you know, coming from the clinic side, have you guys been building, my understanding is you have been building education to kind of bring that back all the way to the start of rehab, the, the skill set or the techniques for the rehab side of the house. Um, because I think there, it, it, my personal opinion is going to shine even more than the fitness, fitness side. Oops. I just dropped yeah. my, my cup on my computer. Josh is now dead. It's okay. Yeah. We're all good. Um, no, I mean, we have for the last several years, and you know, it's funny, we started, I call it our non-corrective corrective exercise program. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just want to call it restoration because, you know, like so many, I think, Corrective exercise, you know, is polarizing as a name. Mm. Um, to us, everything is just on a continuum, right? And, mm-hmm. and when you're in rehab, you're yeah. at this far end of a continuum, yeah. which is fun, I think right? People listening to this are, believe in that continuum. They're saying the clinic and the gym, there's no separation line between those. They're just, uh, you know, continuation or amounts of which one you're doing today. Absolutely. And so we, we started going, okay, here's the movement patterns we ultimately want to teach people. Mm-hmm. How far back do we need to start and then where do we go? So I think one of the biggest benefits of a system is it tells you where to start and where you're going. It's like a map, I tell people. Mm-hmm. You just have to decide how far on the map are you going and what's the most efficient way to get there. And that's what we try to do for people. We try to do it and we try to use the implement as another coach because a lot of times we end up asking people to do things that they just have no body awareness of. So how do you want me to do that? So mm-hmm. if I can say, hey, Josh, instead of activate your lats, pull the handles apart, yeah, that's that's going to be more helpful to the client. They're like, oh, because they don't even know where their lats are, right? Yeah. Uh, if it's hey, we're going to create better core stability by having you break the bag apart when you're holding it in your arms. Mm-hmm. Oh, now I understand how to brace. Now I have a better understand how I'm going to create the stability mm-hmm. when I squat or lunge. So it's using you know cues that mom and dad can understand, but that are actually teaching very important complex concepts. But yeah, that's why we started at such a foundational level in our restoration. But that carries through to our higher performance stuff. Like there is no difference. You're just changing where you are in that continuum. Yeah. I think uh, I want to give a shout out to Dan Swinsco up uh, in Mm -hmm. Washington because, you know, he is a consummate professional in the clinician world, but he does a great job of, I mean, he, 
for whatever reason, I've been seeing him use your sandbag uh, since the start of the year more than anybody else in my Instagram feed. <laughs> but it's crazy, great because he always uses it while wearing a collared shirt, which he I does. think is a and great He uses thing. a pink one, so, you know. Yeah, it's a, a good blend of things. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Dan knows, knows what the hell he's doing. He's one of the best clinicians I've ever met. So, um, along with that, so, you know, I, I, I love your perspective there because I think one of the things if people – clinicians go back and especially those with like more than five years experience go back. I think when rehab came out, when people started doing a lot of rehab and, you know, chiropractors, typically we didn't do a lot of rehab. And over the last like five to 10 years, that's kind of been expanding as to, you know, doing the rehab as much as, as physical therapists, but maybe I keep saying five to 10 years, but I forget I'm old. So it might be more like <laughs> 10 to 15. Anyways. Um, you know, what was one of the great parts about the kettlebell if you, if you think about a kettlebell, you're going to have somebody do a Turkish getup and you have a relatively lightweight, let's just say a 20 pound kettlebell. It's providing that ton of feedback like you're talking about without them having to know what the hell it's doing. But you know, you're saying you're not going to just, you don't have to tell them like brace your core or drive your glute, but you're not going to be able to get up into the, I don't know name, get up unless you do those things. And that kettlebell just helps provide that feedback source without having to inter, you know, to consciously attempt those things. And because of that, that's how real movement occurs. You know, no baby in the world ever goes like, oh, brace your core and then press, press up or, you know, fire deep neck flexors and then lift your head. It's like, that's just how we move. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, I just, now I laugh because again, I've made all the mistakes myself, but now when I hear other coaches use cues that are meaningless, I, I mm -hmm. kind of laugh, like engage your core, squeeze your glutes. Like these are horrible cues. What does that even mm -hmm. like? Why? Why? Uh, yeah. And so it's now if we can use tools, uh, our, our training tools as teaching tools, then people get, respond faster, but they right. also start to use their body smart. And so, and especially because some people are kinesthetic learners, they got to feel it. It's like, well, how do I get you to feel what I want you to do? Yeah. Uh, and, and so, and I want that to be an active process too. I don't want it to be passive. Can you maybe share one exercise or rehab? Uh, I don't want to say corrective exercise, but sure. one exercise done in, the, in rehab that, the the sandbag really shines versus other tools that that maybe you've seen that have kind of fall off. Sure, I mean I think an easy one. Uh, people seem to love people seem to love a, a host of our, our, our restoration drills, and one of them happens to be the dead bug. And okay. you know I think we've all done dead bugs. Oh God, and uh, way too right. many. <laughs> and and it's a great exercise. However, I think a lot of us can also appreciate when you assign that to a person. Usually, it's a you know what show. Uh, and no fault of their own. They just don't know how to control their body. Mm -hmm. So as we give all these verbal cues, it doesn't fix it. You know, mm -hmm. I remember teaching a, a course and I was talking to uh, uh, all these trainers. I'm like, hey, you know, we, we try to avoid having the rib expansion, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, so what do you tell people to do to not, do, not have that occur? We go to them, we tell them not to put their ribs up. I'm like, <laughs> well, does that work? They're like, no. I'm like, what do you do then? They're like, I don't know. I don't have a better strategy. It's uh, like people that have, assign glute bridges and say, well, the person can't fire their glutes. So I, I gave them glute bridges. Yeah. What, what do you think their first attempt is going to be? <laughs> it's not going to be exactly. to fire their glutes, you know? So to answer your question, what we do is we use the bag as a feedback tool. So yeah. instead of having the arms and legs moving at the same time, is if you guys can imagine holding something about shoulder width apart, and we're going to hold it about, you know, stomach to, you know, low part of the sternum. We're going to grab out the outside handles because we know grip is related to rotator cuff and lats. Mm -hmm. We're going to now actively pull those handles apart and we give a cue, I don't want a saggy bag. 
Now, when people do that, all of a sudden they create the brace. So now their ribs are down and they can now control their pelvis when the legs start to move. And then yeah. we can layer progression, whether that's now moving the weight a little bit more overhead where we're changing the lever arm, now we're resisting more extension, mm-hmm. or we start actually rotating the bag when you start developing PNF patterns uh, into the movement. So it's, that's a, one of the great ways that we apply this because not only do we have now a feedback tool that's going to make you stronger, we have ways to add layers of progression that are going to add sophistication to that movement over time. Yeah, I love that idea of no saggy bag because that would early on in rehab, I mean, they could do that with an empty bag, right? That, that. Yeah, I mean, very early on, I mean, if you had to, I mean, the, the, the nice thing about the bag, because I always get this question, can I do that with a band, right? That's the question I always get. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll always be honest with people. If I think the kettlebell is the best, I always say, like, guess what the best tool for a kettlebell swing is? A kettlebell, right? <laughs> like, it's not, this is not training off. You don't say your extra large bag with a right. of 160. Although people will try. I don't recommend that. So, you know, in the case of the band, what people don't understand, number one, I don't get the grip component and the grip is mm-hmm. really, really important. I don't, mm-hmm. I get horizontal loading through the mm-hmm. pull of the band, but I don't get the vertical loading. So mm-hmm. the fact that we get both horizontal and vertical loading, that load makes me create tension. And that tension initially is really important for people to learn how to create stability. When we're talking about feedback. You're getting one plane of feedback with a band, yeah. whereas the kettlebells, I'm sorry, the sandbag is giving us the, that same plane of tension plus the grip, plus the compressive force of the weight, yeah. plus possibly... If I move the band, if I'm pulling apart a band, I move it from my, you know, lowest part of my sternum now to above my, my forehead, it, that essentially remains the same tension. Whereas the kettle or the, sorry, the sandbag totally changes, um, like you're saying, into an anti-extensive force or feedback yeah. tool around anti-extension. So it offers you a whole lot more variables within there. Is that yeah, right? Absolutely. And, you know, the nice thing I always say is like, you know, a lot of people, if you have a five pound dumbbell, for example, they'll be like, oh, I'm going to outgrow that. And our thing is we'll, we'll never outgrow them, the, the size of the bag. We'll just use them differently over time. Yeah. So that's, that's the benefit of knowing, like having that system of knowing where you're going with things. Yeah. I, I you know, I took the uh, FCS course with uh, functional movement mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, we use them there for the, the farmer's carry because if you want to get 50% of somebody's body weight, you're going to be have to switch out. And if you, right. you can't do it with a fixed kettlebell, but they're like, yeah, yeah, just take that sandbag, open it up, throw a couple extra plates or, or <laughs> kettlebells in there and then walk around with them. Holy God, farmer's carries with sandbags are totally different than a stiff handled object that stays rigid. I mean, I've carried them as much weight, but the dynamic nature of something as simple as weight hanging straight down at your sides was so different for me that I, I'm picturing that amount of increased feedback that I got from that drill on a low level, non-intricate drill, I can only imagine what it's like when you get up into these higher level, com- more complex drills, how much more of a rich feedback environment is providing your brain. Yeah, I mean, I think people just miss some things that when, you, when I say it, people are like, duh, why didn't I think of that? Like, you know, for example, if I do a deadlift with a sandbag, why does it feel heavier? People want to default to, well, it's unstable. No, it's moving a vertical point. It's not that unstable. It's mm-hmm. what happens like with a kettlebell, right? If you row a kettlebell versus a dumbbell, they feel different of equal weight because mm-hmm. the dumbbell you're grabbing in the center of mass because the, the kettlebell has some of the weight away from it where you're gripping. You have a lot of the center of mass away from you. So it feels heavier mm-hmm. on the sandbag. You have no weight in the handle. And as the bags get bigger, that gets amplified. So if the, the length of pull is so much more. So like in a farmer's walk, you have this, all the center of mass away from your hand. So it feels so much heavier. And then you have a dimensional component. So in strongman, I was trying to explain this to someone on social media because they didn't understand things. <laughs> the easiest thing to farmers carry is a trap bar. 
because it's one single piece. Okay. Right. If I, in competitions and strongman, they'll use these long bars that have a handle sort of similar to like the sandbag where most of the weight's away from you. Mm -hmm. So the weight, if you move, starts to move too. So now you have to react to the weight moving a little bit too. So it's not this massive deviation, but it's enough to where you have to raise awareness to how you're moving your body. Mm -hmm. And then when you, when you combine that with, Hey, we have about seven different ways we can apply load to your body to manipulate that carry. Well, now we have a way that we can, you know, if I want to put the weight on your shoulder, for example, now I have a walking side plank, you know, like where I have to really resist that lateral plane. If I put the weight, you know, in front of you where I'm holding the crooks of my arms, I can create tension. So now I have a front plank if I can't be as reactive when the weight's down on my side. So there's all these yeah. ways to manipulate. the. That's actually, I mean, with any people. tool, the sandbag or even kettlebells or hell dumbbells, mm-hmm. if you want to know what Josh is talking about, take any tool, carry it with your arms down at your sides, the farmer's carry. I mean, you have decent weight that mm-hmm. will give you somewhere. Then move it into the double rack position and then ditch half the load, but put the other load up on one shoulder. And you realize like that is not a, doesn't follow a linear progression of the weight. In fact, it's, you know, understanding that relationship, you can ditch half the weight and get a still more, uh, more of an ass whooping. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, I mean, that coincides with McGill's work talking about, you know, that frontal plane stability being mm-hmm. so essential. So it's, you know, it, it's, it's sort of one of those, it's simple, but so effective if you do it with the right meaning and purpose behind it. Yeah. Well, once again, share the, share the website with folks if they want to get more about this. Sure. It's dvrtfitness.com. All right. And you have courses, you said the restoration course, which is, for those who are interested in the rehab, getting people back to fitness, uh, it sounds like that's the course. And then you have the ones for uh, the fitness going into performance as well. Yeah. So, you know, we've been teaching live courses for over 10 years. So mm-hmm. what we found is over time, people are digesting information a little differently, obviously in digital formats and people can't really get to things. So we started, you know, putting it online. And my big hesitation as a coach, first and foremost, was can we deliver the same quality in the online course? Sure. But then I started to think the downside of being in person is I'm limited by time. On an online course, I'm not limited by time. So we can actually provide people even more content because of that, avoiding that. So what we do, restorations are foundational, sort of like I call it the non-corrective corrective exercise program. Level one is our foundations of strength and movement. Level two is obviously more advanced multi-planar rotational training. But then we also have our lift program, uh, which... Actually, we start off, stands for Loaded Integrated Functional Training, because I like acronyms. Uh, and that's basically how we show how the sandbag works with tools like bands, medicine balls, uh, kettlebells, suspension trainers as a system. So not just, uh, I don't know what to do today, I'm going to grab my TRX. It's like mm-hmm. having a purpose of like, what's the best tool to use for where you are in training. And then we just released our Progressive Kettlebell Movement Certification, which is my kettlebell certification based off the movement, the seven foundational movement patterns. Uh, so we have lots of opportunities for people to get all the information online. They're all accredited through different organizations. So if people are interested in, you know, can I get my continuing ed? Uh, we've never had a problem even in physical therapy type of, uh, and chiropractic associations. Awesome, man. Well, Josh, I really appreciate the time today. Um, those of you who are listening, if you ever get the opportunity to go to perform better or see Josh speak and you want to try something totally different, I think it's fantastic. Get your hands on a sandbag, um, I think it's just like a kettlebell at first. You're probably going to say, I don't understand. This is just a heavy bag, but man, I've had some, uh, some great fun with it. So I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your expertise today. This is, this is, I think this hopefully will tweak some, the way people approach some uh, rehab and some of their workouts. So thanks really, a lot, Josh. I really appreciate it, Josh. And I, if anyone ever has questions, we're here to be a resource for people. 
Thanks a lot for listening to Clinic Gym Radio. If you're looking for more information about me, about us, about our programs, then just head to clinicgymhybrid.com. Again, that's clinicgymhybrid.com. You can check us out there. We've got our accelerator program and a few other programs that will help you get up and running as quickly as possible and making more money while providing excellent active therapy to your patients.